Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. What gets a wolf or a pigeon up in the morning? No offense to wolves or pigeons, but it's probably not the desire to make the world a better place. As far as we know, humans are unique in the freedom to decide what's worth doing with our finite time on Earth. But as my guest today argues, we often steal that freedom from one another or sell it off without even realizing it. Our finite lifetime, the one thing we have of real value, is devalued by capitalism, and for those who have it, by religious faith in eternal life or eternal everythingness or eternal nothingness. It's a long story. These ideas are better expressed in a 400-page book than in a 60-second intro. Happily, philosopher Martin Haglund has given us that much-needed book in This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom. Martin is a professor of comparative literature and humanities at Yale and a Guggenheim Fellowship recipient, and I'm delighted to have him here with me today. Welcome to Think Again. Thank you so much, Jason. I'm delighted to be here. So your book surprised me because you started out with what turned out in retrospect to be clearly necessary groundwork in attacking the idea of the eternal in religion, faith in the eternal in religion, but then end up laying out a framework for society. I think we should start in the second part, start by talking about value. Yeah. Because it seems to me that this is, in some sense, the core idea of the book, that we talk about values and what we value and what's important to us and how we can't seem to agree on what our values are as a society, et cetera. But the way that we define value in our society is the problem. So you use the term spiritual freedom, and, you know, spiritual has a lot of different meanings for different people. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But you talk about the fact that basically in this life, yeah. we are invested, like every other animal, we're invested yeah. in our own survival, basically yeah. in counteracting entropy through energy. We need to eat, we need to you know, reproduce, et cetera. But we have this second thing, which you call spiritual freedom. Yeah. A very important starting point for me is that like all forms of life, actually, through their activity of maintaining themselves, generate a surplus of time. You know, uh, right. You know, living beings are self-maintaining. And... If that activity didn't generate extra energy to continue that activity of self-maintenance, then that couldn't function. So it's giving them time in the sense of life. It's yeah, sustaining absolutely. life. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And in certain uh, relatively advanced forms of animals, you know, they can actually enjoy that surplus of time as the time for like enjoyment, cats purring right. or dogs playing, etc. But what they can't do is that they can't ask the question what they ought to do with that surplus of time. And that's right. what we can do. And that's why we have free time. There's a question for us of what we ought to do with our time. It's, it's not exhausted by just like the imperative of surviving. So we can, we can really own that question of, of what we ought to do with our time. And, and it's the ability to ask that question that is the condition for spiritual freedom in my sense. This is where I kind of want to tattoo passages from yeah. the book yeah, on yeah. my body, yeah. which is this idea that our lifetime and the freedom to think about and to pursue the things that we think about being worth pursuing, yeah. that that's what we own, own in a sense, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that that's the thing above all else that we should consider value. That's what we should organize our lives and our society to value. Absolutely. And this is what I'm calling socially available free time, (laughs) which is is a mouthful. (laughs) But the idea there is simply that we can relate to 
our time as free, we can ask that question what we ought to do with it. We can also, through various forms of technology, actually reduce the time we need to spend on securing our survival. Right. Socially necessary labor times. So we can increase also how much free time we have. We would have never invented any technologies in the first place unless we were committed to that. That like, I don't want to spend all my time getting water, you know, so I'm going to build a well. So I have more time to engage the questions of what's really intrinsically meaningful to do with my... Even if we didn't think about that consciously, it's a pain in the butt to go two hours to go get the water. Yeah. I'd rather not do that. Absolutely. And then as a result of that, we, we have yeah. freed up more time. Yeah. But it's important to understand that like, for free time to be everything it could be, it can't just be quantitative that we have lots of time to sit around. There has to be institutional forms that allow us to cultivate that question of what we ought to do, what is worth doing. That's education, that's public meetings. Because freedom here, very important, is not like to be free is not to be free from all constraints. To be free is to be able to like see yourself in what you do, to identify with what you do. Right. Uh, and also to be able to see yourself and your commitments in all the relations on which you depend and the institutions on which you depend. And you can affirm that like this actually reflects what I'm committed to. So is there not room then in this kind of view of the world for, I don't know if such a person ever existed, right? But some theoretical simple person, yeah. you know, like the human equivalent of Winnie the Pooh, yeah. right? Yeah. Who goes about the world just kind of existing and interested in whatever. There, there seems to be an imperative here, which won't necessarily be enforced by the yeah. society yeah. that yeah. You're, you're advocating, but an imperative to engage socially yeah. in a way that I don't know if does every human want to do that. I'm glad you asked that because it's very important to me that even though we tend to think of ourselves or some people as Winnie the Pooh in that sense, <laughs> One thing I'm trying to show is that that's actually not the case. However deeply implicit, there's always a question of spiritual freedom for every agent because, you know, you can't make sense of any particular thing you're doing without having some sense of what the purpose is. Even if you feel like, oh, this is pointless. That's still a relation to a, to a purpose, something for the sake of which you lead your life and in relation to which you understand what you're doing as, mm. as meaningful or meaningless. And it's even possible, you know, conceivable that in such a society, we would decide that it is perfectly worthwhile for some individual yeah. to spend their life walking around, observing things, Absolutely. encountering who they encounter through happenstance, that that actually adds something to society that we wouldn't have otherwise, you know? Yeah. No, absolutely. Even though it doesn't look like work for no, the benefit absolutely, of all. No, absolutely, because we're not also about them like maximizing efficiency necessarily. Right. It's about implicitly what we're already valuing is having time to lead our lives, which includes having time to engage the question what is worthwhile and not worth doing, which includes the risk also of recognizing like, whoa, I've been wasting five years of my life. <laughs> that was not worth doing. Right, but right. that sort of capacity for failure is an essential feature of spiritual life. I mean, this yeah. is another thing, that word spiritual, which... You know, I think a lot of people think about like, well, spiritual life, the highest form of spiritual life is some sort of peaceful contemplation, detached from the world. Actually, spiritual life in my sense, you know, only someone who is not only finite, but anxious about their finitude and what to do mm. and is have a living relation to that anxiety about, is this what I ought to be doing? And, and even when I'm really passionately committed, part of what animates my care and my freedom is that type of anxiety. And we shouldn't try to overcome that. We should own that in various ways. So I was thinking about 
actually, before I get into Buddhism, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to go there. That's good. That's good. But, it's very instructive. But, but yeah. before I get into Buddhism, yeah. I do want to drill down on this thing that I think is really interesting and really important about yeah. how, so you talked about technology potentially freeing yeah. up more of yeah. our socially available free time, yeah. our time yeah. to do what we want and or decide what we want. And you very clearly lay out the yeah. case that under capitalism, as yeah. it currently exists, yeah. Yeah. technology does not achieve that for us. Yeah. I also want to point out that yeah. you're very careful to point out that capitalism has given us freedoms and ideas of freedom yeah, and, and individual rights that yeah. did not exist in society yeah. before, yeah. but it just hasn't made good on those promises. What's wrong with capitalism is not that it made us abandon some more innocent form of life or some primitive communism right. that we should get back to. Rather, it's a matter of what have we learned about ourselves and the conditions of our freedom precisely by virtue of the capitalist mode of production? Right. And what have we learned about value through that, through painful historical experience? And seeing that the commitment to freedom and equality that in a certain way have been made possible by capitalism can't be fulfilled by that form of life, and thereby it requires its overcoming. And that's very different than it's like regression back to some innocent state out of which we fell. Because under capitalism, we, we nominally all have the ability to pursue our own interests, and we all collectively nominally have the ability to grow wealth and, and redistribute it. That, exactly. But if someone asks, like, what justifies capitalism? It's just like, well, because you can lead your free life. And also look at these other epochs where a whole segment of the population that were just slaves who, right. whose time was not acknowledged as valuable at all. So you're very clearly acknowledging that, yes, this is better than that, or at least raises the possibility of ideals that we are not living up to and that we ought to. Exactly, because those ideals don't come from nowhere. They are themselves made possible by various transformations in how we reproduce our lives. So even though one should say it is very important that under capitalism, all forms of direct slavery still exist and has continued to exist, but at least we can recognize it now as a contradiction of our values. There ought right. not to be slaves. And then the question is, like, if the justification of wage labor is supposed to be, it's going to be a means for the end of leading your life. Mm -hmm. But if in practice you can show that what should count as a means and what should be the end of that means can't actually be embraced as the purpose because the purpose is the generation of profit and growth of value in that sense right. rather than the expansion of our socially available free time, then you have the resources for criticizing capitalism within the way it justifies itself. So we can combine, we can say like, yes, both specify why capitalism has to be overcome, but also why we couldn't have learned historically why without capitalism. It's not like we also could have sat down in ancient Greece and just figured out, like, <laughs> right. this is how we should do Like, the way we learn and come to understand things historically has to do with this, this determinate form of historical experience. And like, and we have to think about, like, where the idea that each one is an end in themselves uh, and of intrinsic value, that's, that's a specific historical achievement, you know? Right. That's an ideal and a commitment to which we came to hold ourselves. It wasn't given that we were going to even have that historical achievement. My starting point is like, given that we have achieved that, what does that demand of us? And why is that promise and that commitment impossible to sustain and fulfill as long as we don't overcome capitalism? That's the argument. So technology yeah. under capitalism does not give us more 
free time because... Right. If I'm a capitalist and I'm figuring out how to develop various forms of technology, I'm not thinking like, well, how do I develop this technology such that overall everyone has to expend less time on socially necessary labor. That's not your goal. No, that's yeah. my, my goal is to, is to make a profit. Yeah. You know, is to transform that surplus time into surplus value. And that means that even when I'm trying to reduce how much time it takes, that's not to free up time for everyone. It is to be able to like make greater individual profits. And that shapes how we develop technology in the first place. So practically speaking, like yeah. when, you know, in your well example, yeah. or getting water yeah. is instructive here, we make the well or we make the, what do you call it? Like the super well? Yeah, or the hyper well. Yeah, hyper well. Yeah. So suddenly we're able, you know, instead of having one person take two hours to get yeah. a bucket of water, it takes one person one, you know, one yeah, hour. Just, yeah, and uh, we have running water, you know, and that should free up a lot more time for everyone to lead their lives. You but know? it does not because the person has to stand there pushing the water button. And, and also because if water is not a commodity that is produced and sold for profit, you know, it doesn't generate any value or wealth in the capital sense, you know, sure. uh, because we don't measure our social wealth in terms of how much socially available free time we have. We, we measure social wealth in terms of how much profit are generated by corporations that can then be taxed and distributed in various ways. But, you know, let's take something that is being sold, yeah. you know, a product when the technology makes it more efficient to produce that product, that doesn't free up more time for people because people get unemployed and then they just have no money or the profit margins go down because yeah, other people there are get the same technology. Yeah, all of these factors that track yeah. all of these different contradictions. Yeah, yeah. But when people talk about like, well, you know, so many human beings might become irrelevant or useless when technology develops, then we should ask ourselves like, what is our conception of relevance and <laughs> right. value and use such that when you're not needed to produce commodities, that then you're irrelevant? That should tell us that there's something wrong and contradictory about the way we understand what our lives are for, right. what is meaningful, what is relevant, what is useful, because uh, a human life is not for the sake of producing commodities or for the sake of profit. It's, for the sa it's an end in itself. Right. Yeah. So being unemployable yeah. in the sense of being not being needed to produce whatever it is that Labor the that no one really wants, wants to, to do. Produce at yeah. the moment should not mean irrelevance. And, and then also it shouldn't mean unemployment if we would understand employment not as wage labor being paid to do something that you don't want to do. But people are needed for all sorts of work that they could take up and see as meaningful in itself if we organize our society in view of that. But it's very important to see that like the reason we can't see it is not just because some individual failure, because under our life as it's currently organized, it is objectively a problem. Right. Because the only way anything gets moving is through wage labor, that type of employment that requires right. privately owned corporations to not what is assessed to be the most valuable and useful thing for society as a whole, right. but what is profitable for the individual corporation. And like no one can make a living uh, and society as a whole can't generate wealth. Right. without that form. So that's why when I say that we need to revalue our conception of value, that's not just a matter of like looking inside and figuring out what <laughs> right, we right, value, right, right, right. but to own up to and make that form of value non-contradictory, we actually have to transform, and I try to lay this out in detail, all the way from how we uh, reproduce our life through production of goods to education and all of these things. So yeah, and that's what and that's what takes us to yeah. the very big move of the book. I mean, there are many big moves in the book, yeah. but this is a this is a heavy lift yeah, for yeah. us, which is drawn from Marx but elaborates on yeah. Marx. And yeah. basically, 
Social democracy, as you describe it, yeah. is basically redistribution of wealth yeah. within existing capitalist systems. Yeah. And you know, the in your, you're from Sweden, yeah. right? So your yeah. own your own country. Yeah. Democratic socialism, on yeah. the other hand, is a, just a complete revisioning of yeah. value. Yeah. We, we, what we value is socially available free time, and we yeah. consider that wealth. Yeah. And that's where the American brain yeah. starts to go, yeah. what? Like, yeah. what is money? How yeah. is what? Yeah. You know, like. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and so, <laughs> and, and that's, you know, that reaction is precisely what I'm after. Uh, <laughs> the brain starting spinning like that because all these questions of redistribution and equality that we're facing now, reforms, which I take seriously, obviously. But one thing I'm trying to show is why like the deeper problems of unemployment, exploitation, commodification, that those can't simply be solved by, repro yeah, by yeah. reproducing, uh, but by redistributing wealth. We need to ask the deeper question, you know, how is wealth even produced under capitalist system? How is value even measured? And the redistribution of wealth, yeah. and you know, you talk about yeah. universal basic income, which yeah. is an interesting, you know, yeah. comes up a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, the idea of like, you know, the pure idea of universal basic income, which would be like that you'd be able to have a living wage without necessarily working, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and that would free you from the slavery of having to work at a job that yeah. you don't want to work at. Yeah. It would enable you to do what, what you want to do with yeah. your time. But the problem with that, as with all redistribution models, as yeah. you point out, is that it is dependent on the growth model. It depends on endless growth, endless profit, and it is subject, therefore, to boom and bust cycles. Yeah. And also, the more people you take out of the economy the more through universal basic income, the less profit there is to be, the less growth there is. So Absolutely. it's not sustainable. And you can bring out the contradiction very clearly because all you have to do is make that a general law. Say that everyone has universal basic income. Well, what is an income? That's because you can pay for someone else to do something that you don't want to do. Right. But all you have to say is say that everyone has universal basic income, then no one can do anything with it. I mean, that we haven't asked what money is in that <laughs> right, sense, or what right, income right, right, is. Right, that, right. That, so it hasn't fought through its own implications for you to say like, well, then I can just kick back and do whatever I want. Well, that's predicated on that you can use your income to make other people do labor. So it's Right, because income as it currently exists yeah. is buying people's time in order to make exactly. profit. So exactly. universal basic income is buying people's time to yeah. free their time. So it, so it pre yeah, so it presupposes then that most people globally don't have a universal basic income that takes them out of job because if they did, you couldn't use your income for anything. So you're reliant on other people being wage slaves, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And then on the few kind of billionaires that are profiting. Off yeah. Of them, yeah, and all forms of redistribution are going to have to ignore that fact. So if we're really committed to freedom and equality, by our own lights, we can see where we can't stop at redistribution. Uh, universal basic income is not an alternative to capitalist wage labor because both everything that's distributed as income is generated by the profits and the wealth of that mode of production. And then what you yourself use it for is to make other people do wage labor. <laughs> right, 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 right. That's the only thing you can use money and income for. So that then leads us to democratic socialism, yeah, yeah. which it's Marx, but it's not. 
Can you talk a little bit about how it elaborates on, on Marx? I mean, I'm not trying to find a blueprint for life beyond capitalism. Right. But I'm also saying more than Marx said about it, because I elaborate certain general and concrete principles in light of which we would have to be organized. And then how you practically work that out is a different question. But. And those are three. Yeah. They are that we should, first of all, own the means of production collectively. Yeah. Well, that's not the first. I'm going to let you. Yeah, yeah, the first, the, yeah, the first one is that the positive measure of value becomes socially available free time rather than socially necessary labor time. But the material condition and possibility for that is that means of production are not privately owned for the sake of profit, but used for the common good. That doesn't mean that we'd have to have a central planning committee of like an authoritarian state. You know, one example sure. I give is that like, if everyone had access to internet at the highest possible speed, one reason we develop apps and so on is to solve various social problems. And like the ones who would be socially generalized and come to spread would be the one who are actually like the best at doing what they're trying to do. Right. Whereas There'd now, be sort of like wicky communities yeah, exactly, of people yeah. just yeah. developing apps or whatever. Yeah, and, that, uh, and, and whereas what's happening now is that no, what, what's most profitable is done. And we even build into our devices that they should cease to function earlier rather than later because then people have to do buy new ones, you know? <laughs> right. So collective ownership of means of production doesn't mean that a central planning committee is deciding from above what everyone are allowed to do with the technology. It just in, means fact, that, in fact, that would contradict the point exactly. because we, we must be collectively invested yeah, absolutely. in this, not have it dictated to us. The one thing you can't do is that you can't use them for the sake of generating private profit. Then it's built into the practice that you're motivated to develop it in a way that solve actual social problems. Basically to, to make more efficient the survival stuff, the stuff some of us might want to do, but most of us probably don't want to do yeah. to free up more socially available yeah. free time. And even the quality of that sort of work, say that no one wants to do as an for itself, if you can see that participating in that, you, you understand the purpose of it. It's for the sake of something that everyone values rather than for the sake of some individual profit of, of a corporation. I mean, that also changes the quality of the work. And then the third thing is? Well, that's the one principle that Marx specifies. It's like, well, the principle should be from each according to their ability to each according to their need. Which means? Uh, <laughs> yeah, which means that, I mean, what your abilities are is of course something that you have to figure out and which of those abilities you're committed to cultivating. That's why we need institutional forms for that. And under such a form of life, you would be motivated to sustain those abilities and those professions. Like, yeah, I have a great ability to be a doctor. You know, right. And I take out that not because that's gonna like give me a higher wage than all these other people, but because like this is something that I discover through institutional forms of uh, coming to understand myself that I can do really well and that I find really meaningful. I mean, we might have a limited capacity to teach people in medical school, you know, but whether you get in or not wouldn't be a matter if you can pay for it. It would be a matter of your abilities, right, you know, so right. from each according to their ability. So you might uh, then have to revise your self-concept. Absolutely, say, but in relation mm -hmm. to like actually socially discovered limitations, there are other people who seem more able to me than this. And then the other side of it is like to each according to their need that, that's built in a recognition that we are all essentially dependent, finite again, and uh, can't sustain our lives on our own, and that we can see that our society is organized in such a way so as to provide for the needs of those citizens. And those needs themselves 
transform, of course. They're not given what they are. Under the, in a sense, system that yeah. you're, you're laying out, those needs are much bigger, as we've been discussing, yeah. than what we typically think of as need. You know, when yeah. we think of to each according to his need, we imagine someone eating a dry crust of bread. Yeah, yeah. The absolutely. need is fulfillment. The need yeah. is absolutely. purpose. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and depending on the abilities that we're cultivating, also our needs change. They're really two sides of the same coin. So I want to just interrogate one mm. Buddhist yeah. angle before yeah, yeah, we get to the second part of the show. Yeah. Um, so I spent a lot of the first half of your book because yeah. I actually am very interested in Buddhist ideas and practice, yeah. kind of wrestling and struggling and balking at you know some of the critique of Buddhism. Buddhism was just one of, you basically say that all religions share this tendency toward faith in the eternal. And, but my understanding of mm. Buddhism, mm. because of course there mm. is the idea of nirvana, and mm -hmm. of course there is the idea of enlightenment mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. total release from samsara, yeah. You know, and I've read the original texts in translation and, you know, the bigger part of Buddhism to me or the part that is really the practice of Buddhism is a gradual awakening to the idea of attachment. Now, you point out that attachment is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, you know, we should be attached to the things that, that matter in our lives. However, I was then thinking of like the brothers Karamazov and I thought of like Dmitri, you know, and I think of Alyosha as in a sense spiritual detachment and, and Dmitri as just total attachment. I would think that you would agree that there is such a thing as unhealthy attachment. Absolutely, absolutely. So it seems to me that the awakening that mm -hmm. Buddhism, the practice of Buddhism teaches, I mean, up to the point of nirvana yeah. is basically about loosening attachments that are unhealthy, recognizing the ways in which we attach unhealthily to things and loosening that. Absolutely. So is that ob objected to in your uh, No, it, I'm really glad you asked the question that way because it allows me to, uh, to clarify a number of things. As I said before, within all religious practices, there are, and what I would argue really matters to people in them, are better understood in what I'm calling secular terms. Mm -hmm. uh, so my distinction between the religious and the secular is also allow us to then ask ourselves, like, what in these practices is it like that's really valuable and insightful and that we can cultivate? And what is it that is misleading or distorting? Right. So, so that we can develop a secular understanding of the practices. And you can do that in relation to Christianity. You can do it in relation to Buddhism and so on. Sure. So I have no doubt at all that various form of meditational practices are a useful means for lots of people to the end of being able to lead their lives in a fuller way. You know, and I say this explicitly right, in right, the book. Right. And we know that a lot of Buddhist meditation practices has, have been successfully adopted for such secular purposes. Now, what I'm calling into question and why Buddhism is an interesting example for me is that the religious ideals of Buddhism, such as Nirvana, are a very clear and honest example of how, if you take it that the most desirable would be a form of existence in which, you know, you couldn't suffer, you couldn't be subject to pain, you couldn't right. die, and you were released from all of that, you actually would be nothing. <laughs> right, right, and right, my right. whole book is asking, like, well, that's what's been, when you really look at it, what religious traditions ultimately say it's like, well, the highest form of success, the most desirable would be that sort of resting in peace. I'm going to say, is that really what we want? Well, and yeah. this yeah. is the move that Buddhism and every other religion makes, which yeah. is to say that, you know, Buddhism, I think even more so in some ways than other religions says, look, it's a long way to yeah. there. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of life between here and there. Yeah. And by the time you get to there, to the point where what you're looking at is just the kind of like unfolding dharma of things, the cause and effect yeah. relationships in which, you know, 
self is not meaningful and all of these other things are not meaningful, you are at a very different place from where you're at now. Right. So, I mean, that's a claim. And, you know, without being the Buddha or, or traveling that path, I don't know. But, right, but, but, we, but think, it would say you can't jump from here to there. I think the important question is, like, how should we understand what the highest good is? And I think it's imperative to recognize that the highest good is not some purpose beyond our shared fragile lives, but that that to fully recognize both in theory and practice, truly and in itself, we need to let go of those religious ideas that sees this as a mere means to the end of such salvation. Well, yeah. in a sense, it's almost the same thing to say that you have a goal which is not a goal of this thing that you actually can't focus on as you're going through your practice and that the practice is awakening you to life itself and that you are in life itself and that that thing may happen, may not happen, whatever, but you don't even understand what it is yet. Like it's almost the same thing in a sense as saying engage in life now. The important difference though is that like, there's a difference between awakening to that, my account, to that like always already attached and committed to something that you can lose and it can cause you pain and that, and that the attachment itself is not the problem. Right. How you are attached, how you sustain the attachment, how that's modulated, mm. that's what we should be mm. focusing on. Mm. But it's a misdiagnosis to think that like the deepest problem is attachment in general rather sure. than how we're attached. Uh, sure. And that's why I sort of want to call into question the normative status of that ideal of detachment. Even if one thinks it's unattainable, I still think it's pernicious to hold it out as an ideal rather than fully recognize that passion, anxiety, attachment is part of how things matter. And the question is not like whether or not to be attached, but how to be attached. Is there anything in what you value in these practices and what you think they can achieve that couldn't be wholly understood in what I'm calling secular terms, you know? Right. And, and in those terms, then, some of these practices of, of mindfulness and meditation and adjusting how you are attached, that would be all for the sake of being able to more fully engage the question of how to lead your life, what to do with your finite time, what to prioritize, what is valuable. And, uh, and so my question then is about the absolute necessity of removing, for example, from Buddhism, the, the, the concept of nirvana, because the Pali Canon, which are as near as we know, is based on the original dialogues of the living Buddha. Yep. The man alleges that he went through a series of practices and then he ended up at an understanding of reality which will result in him sort of not returning to this cycle of rebirths. Yes. I have, you know, issues with rebirth, I have issues yeah. with karma, etc. But my thing is about this necessary severing that you're saying. Yeah. The man says, you practice these practices you will awaken more to the life as you're living it. That will affect your life in community. That will affect your life here in our monastery and also in reaction or if you're practicing at home because yes. there are home practitioners yeah. in his time too and your relationships. And it will awaken you to, to the way that we get unhealthily attached. However, at the end of this 
path, yeah. <laughs> reality and your relationship to it as you understand it will completely dissolve in a sort of metaphysical sense that you can't really understand right now. You're saying we must absolutely cut that off and these practices are only valuable insofar as we can apply them to this. Yeah, stuff. I mean, it's the prestige of that idea of that the ultimate purpose is to be released from our fragile, painful, difficult life together. I think we should recognize that Again, the, the highest good, the ultimate purpose is to not be released from such a fragile life together, but to make it flourish and purposeful in the deepest ways possible. And then it's like, at the end of the day, if everything turned out as it ought to be in the Buddhist vision, then like everyone would just be released from into Nirvana, even if that would take a thousand years. We so, would not yeah. live. Yeah, there would, would be no, no life. But that's sort of related to how one understands the problem of suffering. So. The Buddha goes out into the world, see all these people suffer, and the, and the solution is to transform your inner relation to that, ultimately in such a way that you can come to recognize that's an illusion and be released from it. Right. That's a very different project than Marx going out into the world and seeing that, no, we have to transform the social conditions of suffering. We have to transform in, the institutional forms in such a way, not as so as to be released from all possible suffering, but so as to qualitatively flourish in this life in a different way. Well, what I would say is that, that the Buddha adds that Marx maybe doesn't is that a lot of that suffering is produced not only by our institutions, but by ourselves and by our own minds. I think that is true. And I think that's important as well. Absolutely. But that's, yeah. well, that's one of those insights that I think can be salvaged in the right way by my framework. That is to say, like, there are all sorts of works one can do about how we are attached without thinking that the goal should be releasement from all attachment. And that, I think, brings us to your favorite word, unintelligible. Yes. The concept of nirvana is really unintelligible in the context of life as we understand it. It Absolutely. doesn't, you can't kind of hold both. You can't hold the idea of the ultimate disillusion of attachment to anything in your head and live your life at the same time. Absolutely. And when I say something is unintelligible, that should not be understood as like, oh, we are just too small and finite to understand it. Right. That would be, again, be a religious understanding of finitude, like we're limited in that way. No, it's unintelligible because it is... Makes no sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it makes no sense. And therefore, it's undesirable <laughs> to strive to achieve a state in which you couldn't be anyone and you couldn't do anything. You couldn't die, but you also couldn't live. And what I'm trying to show throughout the whole book is that you can't have one without the other. You can't have the pleasure without the pain. You can't have the life without the death. You can't have the mattering and positive care with also the, the precarious anxiety and vulnerability. Then it's about how are we going to do justice to that and acknowledge that in taking care of one another. One thing that unites the whole book is really like the question of finitude in the sense of like, how should we think about our right. finitude? Okay. You know, the book covers a lot of ground, politics, religion, literature, philosophy, but that's really the animating question for me, you know, that how should we understand our finitude? And so in simple terms, like to be finite is to be dependent on others and to live in relation to death, you know, so like I'm finite because, you know, I can't sustain my life on my own and because I'm going to die. And all the things who I'm trying to be, what I'm trying to do, all of these things are finite and fragile because they can fall apart. And one of the things I'm trying to address in the book or in different registers, like how should we think about our finitude? How should we see it? And some of that we all know that we're finite, but how should we understand that fact? And the religious understanding of that is the understanding that like somehow that's a fallen condition uh, or a lack. The, the best thing would be to not be finite. And I'm trying right. to show that actually that sense of finitude, while it is painful and difficult, it's also part of what animates our care and anything mattering. In practice, 
you know, the, the, the faith that sustains our care for one another, even for those who identify as religious, is secular in my sense. That is to say, it, it stems from a sense, both in the belief in the intrinsic value of, say, the community, the life, the relationship, the institutions we're trying to maintain, but right. also a sense of that they are essentially fragile. They depend on our practical commitment. They don't exist unless we sustain them. That's mm -hmm. the heart of secular faith. So secular faith, yeah, let's take a little bit, yeah. a little yeah. bit more time then yeah. and un unpack that. Mm -hmm. You talk about sort of the two moves yeah. of faith, right? Yeah. So in religious faith, it's like, first you accept that you have no control, that ultimately, you know, it's up to God or natural law or yeah. whatever. And then secondly, you place your faith or your trust in God or natural law to yeah. take care of yeah. things so that yeah. you don't really have to worry about the, t the temporal. Yeah. Uh, secular faith, on the other hand. Two movements that are made at once. I run ahead into whatever I'm committed to, uh, whatever I'm devoted to. Say, I'm married to someone, we're in a relationship. You know, That's our object of faith, we're devoted to it. But right. part of what animates that commitment is our awareness of that is essentially fragile, it can fall apart. So we run ahead into that sense of fragility, mm. but that doesn't make us, the fact that this could fall apart, that I could be shattered by it, doesn't make me withdraw my commitment. It's part of what animates and recalls me to the fact that like we have to sustain it. So the reason it's faith is that for those who choose the path of secular faith that yeah. you're talking about, we are choosing to invest and we're choosing to to believe, in a sense, in each of these projects, even knowing that it's finite, even knowing that it's fragile, there's something there that isn't purely rational. There's a decision that we're making to say, I love this thing, I'm willing to invest in this thing, rather than to go the path of nihilism and say it means nothing because it dies. Yeah, absolutely. It's important, though, to on the fundamental level that that's not simply, on the most fundamental level, it's not the choice we have. We find ourselves caring about things. We find our things mattering to us, being committed to them. Right. And then it's a matter of how we're going to own up to the demands of that commitment. You mm. know. So like in that sense, we all have secular faith in the sense that we are committed to projects that are fragile and part of why we feel compelled to be faithful to them or sustain them is because we grasp in practice that they, they depend on us. But even they, including nihilism or, or some other, even stoicism or whatever the project is. But then is. it has to do with like, you know, what does it mean to explicitly own that, you know, and how does that open up deeper resources for sustaining and cultivating those commitments? You know, one definition I give, I say like, you know, in secular faith, the object of faith is dependent on the practice. So you, you know, you grasp that like, what we believe in, what we devote to, doesn't exist independently of, of us believing in it. And mm -hmm. then what I'm calling religious faith is the idea that there's a special object of faith right. that, unlike all those other objects of faith, itself is exempt from fragility and would exist even independently of our devotion to it, whether that's God or Nirvana or heaven, etc. Mm. And it's that idea I want us to let go of, so as to explicitly recognize that what is actually the highest good, what's our ultimate purpose, is our life together. Hegel's understanding of religion is important to the book, at least the way I read that, because Hegel's idea was that the actual object of devotion in religious practices is actually the congregation itself, you know, right. and the way we acknowledge and recognize one another through coming together in ceremonies around birth and death, and in those practices, recognizing each other's dignity and our intrinsic value. But Hegel also pointed out that like, the religious understanding of those practices can't grasp its own truth, because it thinks that the ultimate object of devotion is not that fragile life of the community that is built through those practices, but either a salvation that goes beyond that fragile life or a God that commands norms external to us and that we should obey rather than like what we're committed to is our life together. So it's really a question of how to understand what the highest good is and, and trying to show that the highest good is 
the shared life of fragile, material embodied spiritual beings. And the more we recognize, the more we'll have resources to also like do justice to that. This is a good place for us to go to the second part of the show. Yeah. In this part, we look at Big Think also does video interviews. We will look at short surprise clips from the video interviews. They're a surprise because our production team picked them. I haven't watched them. Martin hasn't watched them. They're just conversation starters. They may be pretty random and mm -hmm. out of left field, or they may not. So we'll see. Great. OK, so this, this clip, appropriately enough, is coming from a spiritual teacher named Rob Bell, and they've titled it, Would Jesus Have Wanted Christianity? Why is it so hard to love your neighbor? Well, I mean, if you think in terms of evolution and how we got here, tribes and tribal affiliation kept us alive. So you had your group, and it was your group against the world, and there was a threat. Um, at any time, you had no idea where the threat was coming from, and so the way that the species survived, the way that we got here was people held to each other, stuck close to each other, because you never knew what threat was hiding in those bushes. You even think about early brain development. Is there a lion in the bush or not? Um, the brain developed quite quickly, this radar for yes or no, because if there is one, I'm going to run this direction really fast. Uh, and so some of these impulses, they served us very well and got us to this point. But the way that development works is something that may have gotten you to this point may now be in the way. I mean, anybody want to go back to puberty? Uh, I don't. I don't have a problem with puberty. I'm quite grateful for puberty. I'm also grateful that I moved through it. Without it, I could have gotten here. Uh, and so one of the, the keys to understanding how we grow as humans and how we spiritually grow is something served us well for a while and now you transcend it, you move beyond it, but you've also included it. It's not like you ignore it or avoid it or deny it. It simply helped shape you into who you are. And so to this day, for many people, the other, the one who isn't like me, all of these primal instincts well up. Is, is this a threat? Um, and could, could this um, person be a possible obstacle to my thriving and growth. I don't know, I have to do all sorts of assessment. My radar is on full when it comes to interacting with those people. Um, but the powerful thing that's happening now is more and more people. And the moments that when you often grow the most are when you are engage. The moments when you engage with that person who is the other, who is them, and you discover, uh, you discover if you look far enough inside them that you see yourself. And to me, that's the real that's the real challenge, the real art, the real invitation is to look far enough into this person with the trust that at some point I will see myself. I will see my struggles. I will see my challenges. I will see a bit of my story in them. I actually think Jesus would be mortified that a religion started in his name. I think he'd be like, you what? Uh, I think Jesus came to wake us up and remind us of the shared humanity, the, the brother and sisterness of all of us. Um, I don't think he came to create another division where people could say, are you this or not this? I find Jesus more compelling than ever. I find his message of love, grace, compassion, uh, courage, uh, a third way of nonviolence in the world, um, care for those who the system has not worked for them. 
um, love for the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant among you. I, f I find his way, I find him more compelling than ever, I believe. Uh, but I think the last thing he came to do was start another religion that would divide us even more. So when he says, love your neighbor, um, which was a text from his tradition, he's quoting something there. Uh, if you love your neighbor, your neighbor could be anybody. And suddenly you have bonds and connection and solidarity with all sorts of people. That's uh, always the moments of greatest joy. So uh, I, I don't have really a problem with the word Christian unless it becomes this giant bulky thing that serves just to divide people all the more when Jesus' message was about bringing us together. How we should understand the birth and death of Jesus, how we should understand the incarnation and crucifixion is actually a major sure. theme of the book. Because I'm very interested in what it means that we came to think of the divine as something that is born and that can die. And from what I'm calling a religious understanding, that's still like just an intermediary step. God descends into mortality and then descends from it, you know? Right, in a sense, Jesus isn't really sacrificed because he goes back to the Trinity. But there's a different way of understanding it, which I develop out of Hegel, is that instead of understanding incarnation as the recognition that any form of spiritual life must be materially embodied, must be fragile, must be mortal, and that's part of why it matters in the first place. Mm. And then that would be a step on the way to fully recognizing, as I said before, that the highest good, that to which we are devoted, is our life together, and that's and it only exists through the way it is sustained that way. And that would be fully to think incarnation, not as the incarnation of a immaterial and immortal God. So, because actually, for the story of Jesus to matter at all, the sacrifice has to matter. Yeah. It doesn't actually mean anything yeah. if there's not a real sacrifice. Yes, and the resurrection then is just the way in which one remains faithful to that which can always dissolve and has to be sustained and kept together. Right. And in line with that, you know, this idea of loving your neighbor and so on, which easily become abstract ethical and moral principles, what would be the institutional and material conditions that actually allowed people to recognize one another as ends in ourselves? You know, it's easy to say that, you know, right. that we respect everyone's dignity and their freedom and them as ends in themselves. But what would be the way of organizing our lives together and the way we are already interdependent in a way that actually allowed for that. And that's not something that can just be achieved through individual moral deliberation on this is how I ought to do it. It has to do with, because what we can do and who we can be is always determined by our social relations to others and, and the whole in which we find ourselves. So. And it seems like it seems like going from where we are now to, yeah. to that, yeah. there would be a real, I mean, we've got, we have precedent and we have sort of philosophical grounding yeah, yeah. Uh, in past yeah. philosophy, yeah. but I think there'd be a very big learning curve for us because so many of us are conditioned into this kind of wage slavery mentality. The idea of actually taking ownership yeah. of time and purpose yeah. w is something people would have to educate themselves back to. Yeah, and part of the point of emancipation is to like transform our sense of who we can be and what we can do. It's not simply to like move us intact from one place to another. Right. And I take it that like an account like the one I give in the book is just part of this, but the part that it contributes is both giving an account of why where we currently are is actually contradictory in relation to what we already value. What we say we value, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then what it would demand of us to organize our life together in such a way that we could actually own up to 
what that those values and commitments demand of us. And that would mean, in part, taking collective responsibility, at least most of us, of the kind of survival tasks, mm. some of which are, you know, like cleaning sewers and whatever most people don't want to do, but, you know, sharing that. And then for a while, that would have to be built into the to life for a lot of us. No, nobody's centrally dictating that, but... Those things that no one wants to do for their own sake, those are also the things that we're committed to reducing the time we have to spend right. them through, through, say, technological innovation. There might be other domains of life, like interpersonal caretaking, where, like, even if we could develop robots to do it, we, we might be committed to that there is an irreducible importance about other beings who can care and who can suffer, caring for those who suffer. Right. Uh, and the point is not to, in advance, answer all of those questions, sure. but what would be the material conditions of production that actually allowed us to engage that question and formulate our answers to them in a way that wouldn't be self-contradictory, wouldn't generate all of these pernicious practical consequences that, I try to argue, are inevitable as long as we live under capitalism. It is hard to imagine a spontaneous collectivization of the means of production without a revolution. Yeah. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. 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 And, and what I'm specifying is that, like, why we need a revolution and why, what we would be committed to in undertaking that revolution, how that revolution is undertaken is a different question. Mm -hmm. But my book is really about that why by, like, by the lights of the commitments we already have and that are being contradicted in our form of life, just in light of our commitment to freedom and equality, why that requires not just a reform, but a revolution of the form of our lives together, but also what sort of transformation that would be the point of such a revolution. What, and what why the we should care about it. Why, yeah, why we should yeah. care about it and why, by our own lights, it would be a better form of life. That sort of account, again, it's not sufficient on its own, but if we don't have an account of what's wrong with where we are and where we're committed to going, right. we have no chance of transforming our lives together. I think you lay out a very convincing framework and people are, of course, going to start going, okay, what's, what do we do first? Yeah, you yeah know? absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and those are the right questions to ask. And my book is not sufficient to, ask, to answer those questions, but there's a lot of talk now about like, well, capitalism is a problem, we need socialism. But it's a lot of unclarity about what do you mean by capitalism? What distinguishes it? Mm. Like you can define it in lots of ways. What do you mean by socialism? What is the problem with capitalism? Why is socialism desirable? It's easy to sort of rhetorically wave your hands. Like what I'm trying to do is give a rigorous account of what the inner dynamic of capitalism is and why it's inimical to our ability to value socially available free time and the contradictions that gives rise to. Martin Hagland, I'm glad you wrote this book and uh, eager to think about and talk to other people who are going to think about what we do next, because I agree. <laughs> and, yeah, and, 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 and for me, the conversation doesn't end with the book. It's supposed to start yeah, yeah. a conversation besides that. So I, so, I, so I also hope to be pushed further in how to think about this going forward via the reception of the book. So. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, think thank, again you, today. thank you. Thank you. I've been making this show every week for almost four years now. It'll be four years in June. During that time, I've read roughly 175 books for this podcast. And at this point, I have less and less patience for ideas that sound interesting, but don't have any power to heal us individually or as a society. I don't mean everything's always terrible and that we're all desperately in need of healing at every moment, but I think we can do better. Knowledge is fine, but we all need more wisdom. Feel free to write me at jasongotts, one word, at gmail.com. 
I want to hear your stories and thoughts. And I'll be back next week with something else entirely. And I hope you can join me.